Chris Lee, have you been playing much cat cricket in the last year? My cat does like to sit in a shoebox every so often when it's available, and I do fling a ping pong ball towards her, and she does enjoy batting it away. And yes, I did go viral once. Two million um, views, hundred and ten thousand likes. Yeah, yeah, two million plus views, and that was a very surreal um, day, in fact, because I just put it up there as hashtag cat a day as, as a joke, and then somehow it uh, got picked up. A few famous people retweeted it, and it just motored from then. I had to turn my notifications off, so I still do miss a lot of uh, tweets on my personal feed because I have my notifications turned off um, because people are still liking it a year and a bit on. Frankie, yeah, it's great because it, it, the ball's coming towards the cat. What's the cat's name? Yeah, it's because she's called Luna. Luna, and Luna bats it away with a, a front paw. Like a That's right. Tea, tea and then she shirt. comes and lights up ready for the second one. Um, and she'll do that two or three times and then she'll lose interest, which is a cat's uh, way, really. Indeed. Anyone who knows cats. But I've never had a pet. Mm-hmm. We've, we had goldfish. No, so, so we've started with CMR Lee as your personal Twitter account. That's more my work-related thing. So that's... Um, my day job is, is um, copywriting and social media counsel for fintech and cybersecurity firms and PR agencies. So it's like very, very, very different from... Um, from football writing and outside writing, which is what people will know me for. Um, but that's fine, because that gives me the grounding in copywriting that um, helped inspire me to um, to put together um, origin stories, which I know we're going to come to. Precisely. No, well, before we went on it, I did say it's like Spider-Man fighting Spy- Bizarro Spider-Man, because mm. what you do uh, is every Monday you release a podcast to do with football and its culture at outsideright.co.uk. Many listeners may know this, uh, this site's been going for about five years now. It was uh, 2015, I think, I started it. I kind of registered all the yeah. sites in 2014, but I obviously had to spend some time building up some content before I went put it live. Uh, and then the podcast followed the year after that, so about 2016, I think. I what was the spark for the website? Um, well, I was travelling quite a lot with work, and I was getting um, a lot of... You know, when I was there, I was sort of like, okay, I've got a work gig on a Monday, so I'll fly in on a Saturday or Sunday or something and then uh, to Amsterdam and I'll travel down to Antwerp and I'll watch Royal Antwerp on the Saturday afternoon or evening and watch Ajax on the Sunday or something, catch a gig at the Paradiso in the evening. And, it was, and then I'd go to work on the Monday, you know, um, or something like that. And it was, I suddenly realised that I was, and I found like-minded people doing this, posting their pictures on, online about ground hopping and stuff. I thought, you know, I've done quite a lot of this because I was at University of Madrid, lived in Valencia as well. So I've been, I've seen football in South America. So I thought I've been around quite a lot, you know, of, of football grounds. And I thought, you know what, why don't I blog about this? And then kind of it went from just being travel because the, the podcast itself is broadcast, uh, is branded as football travel. Um, and then I talked about other sort of elements of it, such as history, uh, which is where origin stories comes in eventually, and that's a part of the inspiration for that. And then also um, culture, so politics, ultras. Whatever. We had a podcast a couple of weeks ago on the history of football chants, where someone's written a book about that. So, yeah, I mean, why do, how is culture infused within football? What does it say about our society? Does it say anything about our society? Um, or is it just a kind of masculine interpreter, mainly masculine interpretation of it, et cetera? So, yeah, it's, um, you know, there's so many elements to to explore within football itself beyond just ground hopping, but I think the ground hopping is the fun bit, and it's the bit certainly right now that I'm missing. Mm, of, of course, and ground hopping will be spoken of warmly in the second half. You've had Andrew Lorne, as you mentioned. Andrew Lorne wrote that book about chance, and he's very happy because his team are Norwich, and they're <sighs> doing phenomenal. Yeah, I did pretty well this week. Yeah. Who would have thought that just running a club sensibly would get you promoted again? 
It's not hard. It's not hard. Um, and make people make it so difficult. Um, but you've also had Jonathan Wilson in talking about Hungary. Uh, have yep. you had David Goldblatt as well? You have, haven't you? Uh, no, I haven't. No. Ah. I've had Cass Muda, who's one of the sort of um, biggest you know, political thinkers at the minute, writers at the minute. So, yeah, I think some, some really good names on there. Yeah, I mean, it's everyone from, like you said, Jonathan Wilson is among the best football writers to emerging writers as well. So, you know, it's a platform for everyone who's got a story to tell and they can tell it in an articulate way. Uh, and it's just great to, you know, to see how many people that, um, enjoy listening to it and the feedback I get. What's the most listened to? Yugoslavia's fractious football history. So I uh, spoke to the author of a book on the history of Yugoslavia. Uh, the second of which, the second most popular is Among the Ultras with James Montague. And then the third is uh, the football in the former East Germany. And then it's Hungary's Golden Age of Jonathan Wilson. So it's, it's a lot of them are East European based and ultra based. Uh, and then we've got like other ones that popular areas, Italy, very popular and Argentina, very popular as well. Yeah, unsurprisingly. Yeah, the Yugoslavian connection with the Emperor Tito. That is, that was um, outlined briefly in Behind the Curtain by Jonathan Wilson. So I'd love to read that book or hear that podcast. Yeah, I mean, the interesting... Well, actually, I'd, I'd direct you to the, the one about Hajduk Split as well. Oh, actually, yeah. As part of that, because the, um, you know, the history of, of what Hajduk was doing during World War II as a partisan, uh, you know, act of resistance is, is itself quite interesting. Uh, and what happened in the post-World War II uh, era um, as well. So, yeah, I mean, Yugoslavia's had a sort of Press reset, had to press reset on its on its football several times over, but each time it's come out very successfully. I don't understand what's in the water down there, but it's like you know, if you look at the Croatian team of the nineties, or even the Croatian team that made the World Cup final against all odds a few years ago, it's like there's something good down there. They're one of the highest achieving countries at, at any any sporting level per head of population. So yeah, something's going right down there. Yeah, I'll ask in the second half. Have you been to Croatia? I have. Ah, well, I'll I will. I'll write that down um, in the very crowded page. But most of it concerns origin stories, the pioneers who took football to the world. This will go out in the middle of May, so the book will have been out for a month. Now, I've I've right. spent seven years writing a book. You've spent four. When you deliver the manuscript, how do you feel? You've dotted the I's, you've crossed uh, the T's, you've put the page numbers in, you've put the acknowledgements in. Off it goes to pitch publishing, of course. Uh, to print and it'll be on shelves right now or in Amazon so so how do you feel well it took took four years to write and then it actually probably took another year of um, me cross-checking and tinkering as a first book project it was probably picked a topic was a bit too complex so we say um, but it's so that's why it took so long. I'm, I'm doing. I'm working on a second one right now, which is flying off the page because I've taken all the learnings from the first one um, and, and done things differently on the second one. So yeah, I mean, I'm you know, there's aspiring authors who've sort of given, getting in touch writing their first book, and I'm kind of telling them all the things I did differently. I would do differently if I knew first time round. But um, no, I mean, I'm glad I've done it now. Like I said, the feeling was kind of elation that it's off the ball and an absolute. Interpretation to it. it's kind of like yeah how people can respond are they going to like it is something accurate I mean would, you know I'm sure there'll be people who say actually you know it was this date or that date and so I mean across 108,000 words it's going to be it's going to be you know there's, there's quite a lot of fact checking just to say that much how many did you say 80 or 180 108 108 yeah which is something quite... like that it's about 384 pages I think it is comes up yeah, quite big for a pitch book. I know Paul and Jane try and cap it at seventy, eighty. How many pages of footnotes and sources have you got? Have you got like an entire section? Well, there's a, obviously a lot of source references. Um, 
I've you know in the bibliography it's kind of got a lot of the usual subject suspects in there but I've had to at some point I mean I could have gone forever if I'd cited every single club's history page that went on so I just basically capped it on saying you know official websites of, of football clubs and national associations you know often were cited so just to, otherwise it'd be on you know it'd list forever but I mean what I found interesting is during this research process is some historical football clubs really celebrate their history and they put it up there there's quite a lot there you know when you get in touch with them they're, they're only too keen to share information with you and have a chat uh, and others it was quite difficult to find quite a lot of information which really surprised me so you know I always think if you're a club with a rich history you should celebrate that as much as possible. Mm. This book by the way I've got it from a very reputable source, outsideright.co.uk. It's not a debate about who invented football. I think it was China. No. Um, but it's about how the association with the capital A game ascended in the territories and explores the people, clubs, sponsors and associations that introduced and promoted it locally. I'm reading a lot of David Crystal at the moment. You know, David Crystal, Professor of Languages and Linguistics. And it's all about the the migration and the mutation of syllables and tongue position and language. And it's fascinating because it shows how words get from elsewhere and accents get from elsewhere. And it seems to me that this book, Origin Stories, is very similar because football goes on everywhere, but it's the 19th century where it's codified and where you get Sheffield, the home of football. Uh, And Sheffield FC are very keen on their history, and you spoke, among many other people, uh, to Richard Timms, who is the chairman of the club. Yeah, that was a great interview. And, um, yeah, you're right. I mean, it's not about who invented football, because there's lots of different types of football. I mean, I lived in Australia. Um, I played soccer in Melbourne. If you play football in Melbourne, you're usually talking about Australian rules football. Yeah. If you cross over to Sydney, um, sorry, to New South Wales, football is um, rugby league. Uh, and there's also rugby union as well, which is football. If you're in New Zealand, it's, that's football. So, you know, within that, that small geographical area, that, that there's different codes being called football, which is why soccer is a very useful word, as we find the origin of the word soccer Socceroos. within this book. Um, and uh, the, the Corinthian player, Charles Rayford Brown, who first, or apparently first coined it, he's credited certainly with inventing it. And so when you go to a country where the football code is not necessarily association rules, so Ireland, for example, Gaelic football, America with gridiron, uh, or the NFL, um, you know, then, yeah, football takes a different context and you have to use the word soccer to show that you're talking about the ramble game. So that's kind of um, why I was kind of keen to say this isn't an argument about who invented the game, because like you said, there is kicking games pretty much everywhere in the world. So you're talking about, you know, Kuju in uh, China, Kimari in Japan, thousands of years ago, or hundreds of years ago at least, uh, Ulamatlitsi in uh, Mexico, you know, so there's lots of different kicking games and it seems to be the most natural thing in the world to, to kick a ball. I spend very little time talking about how the rules come about because there's plenty of books on how the rules came about. Um, but obviously, just for context, mm-hmm. I have to sort of talk about how basically how the Football Association came to be. Because obviously there's... And that does present a challenge when you're looking at football in other countries, especially in the 1860s and 70s. Because what is football? What's the type of football they're referring to? Which rules are they? You know, you can look at someone like Love Athletic Club in France, which is France's oldest football team, uh, founded in 1872, but they were playing a combination uh, game at that point, you know, and kind of had rugby and, and association rules sections later in their existence. Um, you know, there's reports of a, a football team in, in 
Switzerland in 1860. So, you know, what form were they playing in 1860? You know, so it um, obviously wasn't association rules because that hadn't been founded until 1863. So we have to be really careful when we're thinking about what football is and what it means at those points. So I'm, I'm kind of all the way through, quite, especially the early parts, especially England and Scotland chapters, which are chapter one and two, um, keen to sort of express, you know, defined between association and rugby in particular. Mm-hmm. And then also the Scottish game, which was about passing it, although on what pitches they were passing it, they must have been quagmires. Uh, and then the English game, which was lump it long. Um, and that, um, yeah, that, or dribble, yeah. Yeah, and which brought us to the, uh, the first international match in 1872. The score was... Yeah, it was 0-0. 0-0, of course the, it was. Um... Well, the, the, the first official international, there was an unofficial international set of unofficial internationals between 1870 and 1872, arranged by a guy called Charles Alcock, who I think is the, one of the most important people in the history of the game. And he gets a men- or several mentions because he's the one who comes up with the idea of the FA Cup, mm-hmm. which helps distinguish it from rugby um, uh, in the same season as, as, as the Rugby Football Union is founded, so 71, 72, uh, 1871, 72, I should say. Um, and he also is the one that helps back professionalism. Uh, like I said, he led the first sort of unofficial internationals, and they're unofficial because they're kind of a lot of the players were London-based um, Scots, if you know what I mean. So yeah, more people of Scots descent. Yeah, exactly. Rather than actually um, people from Scotland playing for Scottish clubs, which is why when it comes to 1872, and you have got real. I say real Scottish people, you know, Scots-based players. Um, they're all from the Queen's Park team, and the Queen's Park team is wearing dark blue at this point, not the black and white stripes. And obviously, that's the same kit that stuck for the Scottish national side. So, you know, these are sort of things you wouldn't necessarily notice. You'll just see the Scotland playing dark blue, and that's the same as their flag. You might think that's kind of they'll see the two are related, but at the same time, um, it, it actually comes from, from Queen's Park back in the day. So it's kind of this is. Um, these are little, little vignettes of, of, of history that we'll find throughout this, for anyone that's reading this book. Yeah, indeed. These are origin stories. Much more interesting, I find, than the origin stories of Spider-Man, Superman. Um, and the, the origin story of the first black man to play international football, uh, mm. I didn't know it. Didn't know. And this is... Did you know? It's very fun to think that it took England until, what was Viv Anderson, 78? 70, something like that, yeah. Uh, and Andrew Watson beat him by, gone 90 years? Yes. And Andrew Watson has a book about him, actually, written by uh, Lou Walker, who's very involved with Corinthian Casuals, again, a club that gets a lot of mentions throughout the book. Um, so, yeah, definitely recommend checking that out. And I've got a podcast with him, actually, if I may plug that. So if you uh, no. want to look back at that. But no yeah, yeah, you're right. There was, yeah, he, he played for Scotland in, in the 1880s. I think and he played three or four times. I think he captained them once to a record win against England at, um, at the Oval. I think it was 6-1 or something like that. And then they won 5-1. Uh, he's kind of now at home um, when they were playing at what was the original Hamden, which is now a bowling club. So, but you could, he's got a mural on the club wall now, so you can go past it on the train. If you go, I thoroughly recommend doing this. And I wrote a piece um, in uh, Football Weekends magazine about this, which is uh, the Three Hamdens Walk, which is if you catch a train from Central Glasgow down to Mount Florida, which is only a few stops south. You come out and you can walk down past Queen's Park, the original Queen's Park where Queen's Park played to start with um, and playing their passing game. You can then go past the first Hampton, which now has this mural celebrating this 5-1 win for Scotland against England um, in 1880s. And then you can uh, walk up. So that's the first Hampton. You walk up to Kathkin Park, which is still there. Uh, it's the second Hampton. It's like this pub 
Central Park, which has on three sides this um, terracing, football terracing, with with the sort of crowd barriers and everything still in place. Uh, it's, most of it's overgrown. Some you know some people looking after it to try and sort of bring it back to life, so to speak. Um, but it used to be the home of Third Atlantic Athletic Club for a long time until 1967. So it's still there and it's a real time capsule. I can't think of anywhere else that's quite like it. Uh, and then you can walk up to the modern day Hamden, which finishes with the Scottish Football um, Museum, mm-hmm. which is in sort of the bowls of, of, the, of the club. And, and people don't maybe don't realise that Hamden was actually the highest, uh, had the record crowd in, in football until the American Isle was built uh, you know, in the, for the 1950 World Cup. And obviously had 200,000 apparently in for the final then. Um, but you know, before that, it was Hamden for, for half a century at least. Uh, was the biggest stadium in the world. So, you know, Scotland's contribution is uh, to, especially to early football, uh, both home and abroad, is absolutely huge. And I hope I've reflected that accurately throughout the book. It's got obviously got its own chapter, which is quite um, quite long. Um, but also uh, the Scotsmen that pop up as the you know the fathers of football in places like Argentina, Spain, mm-hmm. uh, and, and various parts of Eastern Europe as well, and even Sweden as well. So. And we are talking a few weeks before England play Scotland at the Euro, the delayed Euro. Do you watch international football or do you not? Um, uh, I do. I watch tournaments. But I think we mentioned this off air really. If I, unless I can see it in person, I don't tend to watch football on TV. Ah, yeah. I listen to it it's on the a radio different, when I'm driving or something. It's a different sport. I, I prefer listening on the radio. Alex Stewart yeah. of The Athletic prefers watching on TV on mute so we can look at patterns mm. without the commentator steering him in a particular direction. But I wonder if the fact that football has been shut to real-life spectatorship for the last year Mm. will make fans think about football in a different way, especially because of what happens in the elite level where nothing is safe until the chap in Stockley Park uh, says it is. Was there a moment for you uh, when football started to pull I think it's been a gradual decline over since the 90s, really, because I grew up watching football in the 80s, where the spectacle on the pitch was fantastic. Uh, the choice of players was amazing. And it was Mexico 86, actually, that got me into it. Uh, it's my first World Cup, I actually remember. I uh, completed the Panini sticker book, which I still have. Um, oh, wait, you must go in the football was... library. Sorry? I must put it in the... There's a lounge area that you can sit right. in and discuss things, and I like to put coffee table books in there. And I think sticker All books, right, yeah. because it's mostly pictures and haircuts and old pictures of Gary Lineker. Um, but yes, 86, the 86 World Cup. Does that mean that you mourned when Maradona passed away last year? Uh, definitely. I mean, I think he's the most, one of the most important figures in the game. Uh, whether you like him or, or loathe him, he, he was... I, mean, I don't get into this greatest of all time thing because I think every era has their own kind of greats and, and they often tend to be... F- forwards because forwards get the attention and the glory they don't think necessarily about goalkeepers or right backs or anything like that um but yeah i mean as a character as a as an entertainer as someone who brings he was definitely like you know i mean here's the thing we go back to 86 and i said i liked got into the game for the first time the very first game i remember watching live was would have been england paraguay in the second group match so i think it was in the middle of the night during the group stages um so sorting the win quite comfortably that much and then I remember seeing Brazil, France, uh, and that French team for me just in the 80s was my favourite team because I had Michel Platini, um, who was my favourite player at the time. Really liked them. We used to go to France every year anyway as a kid. Mm-hmm. And um, so as a massive fan, they had the best kits as well in France in the 80s. If, I don't know if you've ever seen French kits of the 80s. They're massive sponsors, but they're absolutely fantastic. <laughs> recommend looking them up. Um, but so I was interested in French football anyway. Um, and so they, they were on the Saturday afternoon, beat Brazil, who obviously were on 
the wane. They weren't quite the team they were in 82, but they still had Socrates and Zico. Zico missed a pen in that game in normal time. Um, and it was the following day that was the England-Argentina game. You think about that six minutes or so that it is between the handball, the, the most controversial moment in World Cup history, and then the greatest goal in World Cup history within the space of that six six minutes. And then you've got to set it within the context of it's Maradona, the greatest player in the world. Not saying carrying that team, but he certainly did elevate it beyond its capabilities. Really, were they really a championship? You know, a, a full-rounded champion team. Um, you know, without him, how are they far would they have got? And with that six seconds, obviously the context of the Falklands Malvinas um, as well. You've got to sort of appreciate that it was. I think that's you know an absolute pinnacle in football. That's those few minutes, and I and that was when I saw it. <laughs> yeah, getting into the game so, <laughs> and the brilliant sunshine of Mexico 100,000 crowd and it's been downhill ever since to yeah. me, for me uh, really so, I mean I don't know how you beat that World Cup frankly I, I know everyone goes on about Italian 90 but on balance Italian 90 was actually very disappointing it was it was there were very few goals um, it was very important from a cultural perspective because there's a lot of the countries don't exist anymore as a the sort of transition between I guess the pre sort of I say pre-media of the world but you know what I mean it was kind of became very um, moneyed yeah I suppose that is the way you, you, you still had a kinship with, with, with Peter, the footballers at that point the footballers probably earning the same amount of money as, as most people you know or a lot of people anyway they weren't necessarily you know the salaries hadn't flown flown away at that point for a lot of them so I think during the 90s football was still good it changed a lot obviously went to, we went to all seater which is good from a safety point of view uh, the kits were fantastic in the 90s but the 21st century football I think what it's lacked for me is the experience as in from the live experience, at the top level anyway, it's the live experience and the competition. That's what's really changed for me. And that's why I, as a kind of blog about quite extensively, um, I've sort of drifted away to the lower levels <laughs> wherever possible or to more obscure countries, to, so to speak, just to get away from the major leagues. Um, you know, Germany and Italy aside, I think they still retain a lot of that sort of like great experience. But again, the competition, until recently at least, has been sort of lacking in those countries at the top level. So you are in the kind of... The Wilsonian school, but also the Monteguavian school. Is that a word? Monteguavian? You, follow, you interviewed James uh, Montague. I think you just invented it. Yeah, yeah, I think James will credit that. And indeed, uh, James's most recent book, 1312, is now out uh. in paperback. Someone like James, who now lives in... I think he lives in Turkey now. Uh-huh. Something, something crazy. And he's a guy from Essex, a West Ham fan from Essex, who's ended up in Turkey. Uh, does it feature in the book? Yep, it does. I mean, I'll, I'll probably just give you your readers some context, really. Um, Origin Story is basically it's about the country-by-country country story of how the game got started in each major country in a rough chronological order, not exact, obviously, from the very first kick of the Association Ball to the 1930 World Cup, so pretty much the first 40 or 50 years for most countries, by which time we can say the game is pretty much global. And so it starts in, obviously, the home countries, I swear, the home nations as they were known then, um, probably still are to some people so this it goes to England obviously which just covers the law making the first competition women's football and the evangelists so we talk about Corinthian casuals uh, sorry Corinthians are just known uh, in those days um, the changing of the guard in terms of you know when Blackburn Olympic first beat Old Etonians and they kind of take the game uh, away from the, the public school sort of becomes the game of the people effectively so then we move on to Scotland uh, Wales Ireland and then bit about Northern Europe uh, and the French chapter is next because the French were very, very important in terms of internationalising the game and people often forget that. I don't think anyone's ever written a concise history of the French game, at least in English, or that I've come across. And I've, I've 
really wish they had. <laughs> I'm not the one to write it uh, because I've only got GCSE French. It's not good enough. Well, and also, that, but I wish someone would. Without without the French involvement, England would have never won the World Cup. If you go right. all the way back, because FIFA installed the World Cup as the Jules Rimet Trophy, and FIFA is the International Fédération. You go to America, Argentina, Portugal, Denmark. Yeah, we go all over. I mean, we, we, Northern Europe to start with, I guess, because of the proximity to, to England and, yeah, uh, and Scotland. Um, and then we go to, yeah, to the Americas. And I club them all together because Brazil's a bit of a late starter, really. But because Argentina and Uruguay were so advanced, I just thought I'd just go next door, get Brazil's part of the story. Let's just talk to Brazil and then talk to North America as well. And the reason North America is in there early on is because there was a really big, you know, soccer scene in America early on, and people don't necessarily know that. And one of my favourite chapters doing the research uh, was the North American chapter. Um, part of that reason, it's the first professional league outside of the UK and Ireland in 1894. Uh, it was a winter pursuit for baseball um, clubs, and um, which is similar to cricket clubs here, is how a lot of them started for football as a winter mm-hmm. pursuit. But also in the 1920s, they had a, a really successful, you know, culminated, I guess, with a semi-final performance appearance in, in the 1930 World Cup. Uh, and then because of the, the Great Depression, things waned. But there is a huge and brilliant uh, set of researchers, a body of researchers coming out of America right now. Um, and I speak to a lot of them. I spoke to a descendant of one of the players uh, in the American team, a lot of whom were Scots, actually. There's like six or seven Scots, including the coach on the, on the 1930 World Cup team and an English player. Um, a lot of them ended up, again, playing over in Europe as well. Uh, right now, there's a bit of a revival. So a lot of the clubs have, have featured back in those days, like... Uh, in, in the eastern seaboard so Fall River and Fall River Marksman have been refounded and I spoke to them as well just to see what how their inspiration was and so it's quite an interesting kind of rebirth of American soccer going on right now and then uh, yeah we go to Central Eastern Europe um, Southern Europe and then Middle East and Africa and finish in Asia Pacific which is kind of where the game's going anyway but mm-hmm. back to your question about Turkey Turkey features in the Middle East section and it's quite interesting because football does appear to be kind of part of the national awakening for a lot of countries and that's the case for Egypt obviously you know places kind of occupied by um, British at this point anyway so games against British regiments becomes a bit of a sort of quasi act of rebellion same with India when uh, Mahan Bagan which is one of their big clubs right now as well but was then and they win the the Sheffield Shield in 1911 against uh, uh, Yorkshire Regiment and that was seen as a big sort of national awakening moment you know it's the same for other other countries uh, as well and in Turkey in particular as well you know because um, after losing World War One to the Allies uh, the British and French kind of are in uh, what was the Ottoman Empire which becomes Turkey um, or known as Turkey nowadays I suppose mm-hmm. at this point when they uh, I think it's um, Fenerbahce who are very good at, at beating they play about 50 odd games against um, British and French regiment teams and they, they win most of them uh, including the send-off where the British give a particularly good team. They've got former sort of Scottish internationals and stuff going into this to try and win this game. Uh, and actually Fenerbahce win. It's it's really interesting seeing kind of how the game takes off. And as we see over time, basically gets to the point where local um, local born players in every country are doing better than uh, the visiting foreign teams, particularly English and Scottish clubs. We see a changing of the guard, which unfortunately the English and Scottish FAs didn't realise until the 50s, by which time they get involved with international football and, and, and struggle to compete. So, uh, say international competition, I should say, not international football, international competition. So there we are. That's kind of, uh, you know, as you'd see, there's a gradual improvement across the broad. 
That's wicked. Origin stories, the pioneers who took football to the world out now. Um, I'm interested about the American Soccer League because it seemed that the people organising the league, some of them would encourage people to emigrate and they'd pay for their crossing or pay for citizenship. Um, What's the arrangement there? Uh, well, it's quite interesting because it's quite prophetic. There's a, a great report that appears in uh, one of the Scottish papers you know, saying that the standard is improving in, in, in America and it won't be long before they're becoming trying to poach our best players and obviously Scotland's been particularly exposed to this right since the beginning where it was football was professional in England um, uh, before it was in Scotland and a lot of the best players are going south you get a team like Sunderland winning the league uh, with pretty much 10 Scots and one kind of local weirsider in the States it's it's becoming an attractive proposition the ASL is quite quite successful between the 1920s and yeah lots of uh, a lot of players um uh, I don't know how, what exact number there were, but a lot of them were from abroad. And it was attracting everyone, really. It's not just um, uh-huh. English players. I think Bella Goodman, who was um, oh, yeah, you know, yeah. the legendary coach of um, of Benfica, won two European Cups with Benfica. He discovered uh, Eusebio, or at least brought him to Benfica. He was playing for Hako Avin, which was the, the Jewish team of Vienna at that point, and he ended up, you know, they toured America. He ended up playing there. So, yeah, I mean, there was lots of, um, lots of teams visiting the US at that point. Um, National of Uruguay visit European teams, obviously the Corinthians and and Third Atlantic, I think, did as well. Mm-hmm. I read about, gosh, it must have been when I was about fourteen. I found the Billy Meredith story, uh, <clears throat> the the book, and it, the story for for the time is sensational because he, uh, what is the PFA? He was instrumental <clears throat> in sorting it. So it took a Welshman, <clears throat> Wales very big on. Not socialism, but just society rather than individualism. Mm. So the story of professional football in Wales, uh, who have yes. punched under their weight, they are more of a rugby side uh, nation well, than football. They've produced some very good footballers over the years. John Charles, probably better than most Englishmen in the 50s. Billy Meredith is mm. uh, an interesting story. He gets his own section as well, um, because obviously he is from just down the road from Wrexham, which is the home of the hub of association game in Wales. And you do see a bit of a north and south split at the beginning of the um, of Wales. And that's purely that's interesting, the Welsh chapter, because uh, of the proximity of where particular games were play, taking place. So the round ball game kind of kind of by osmosis almost crosses the border into to Wrexham uh, and they are formed in 1864 um, which was something that's only discovered quite recently as it turns out because the original founder date was 1873 on the badge and then they found out there was reports and I looked back over the archive and found these kind of reports and, and sort of had to look at who they're playing and obviously um, just down the road to Chirk which is another mining town which is where uh, Meredith is from uh, and in the south uh, a lot of the, the rugby playing came because of a lot of in the grammar schools in particular, and also a lot of the migration from the southwest of England into to mine coal and stuff. So a lot of those those people from the southwest, obviously, is, as it is now, is the the cradle of, of, of English rugby playing, you know, rugby union. So it's um you know that's where kind of part of part of the reason that rugby was so successful in the south and the ramble or in the north in those or, uh, the original time. I mean, obviously, it's not until nineteen hundreds that we start seeing sort of Swansea and Cardiff. Uh, emerge uh, with their own clubs but anyway yeah just back to Meredith yeah he he is um, a fascinating um, figure in the early game probably football's kind of well, Wales is certainly the first superstar I mean he won the first trophy at each of the Manchester clubs uh, that either of the Manchester clubs had played he got involved in, in um, you know a scandal at Manchester City um, and then he ends up at Manchester United um, 
and uh, he has a, a great section dedicated to him at the National Football Museum, which I thoroughly recommend when it's possible mm-hmm. um, to go and visit and have a look at. Because, yeah, like you said, he, he pioneered in so many ways. He had his own kind of brand of, of football boots. He had his own sports shop. So he was kind of um, – and he, he helped get players their you know, more rights, etc. So he is – a very, very important and pivotal figure, not just in Welsh football or British football, but in football in general, because he was, his legacy is so huge, both from the way players are treated to the way they can monetize their profile outside of the game. Yeah, isn't it amazing that one of the most successful podcasters in Britain today is a former England international, Peter uh, mm. Kratz, it's sensational. I've been to the NFM, the National Football Museum in Manchester, mm. Mm. Uh, and you talked to the former CEO, Kevin Moore, and you talked to Belinda mm. Scarlett. And I listened this morning yes. to that chat. She's the curator of the Football Museum. And you talked a lot about Lily Parr um, and Dick yes. Comma, Cur Ladies. But I was interested, one thing leapt out, which is that next year they are trying for parity in terms of 50% female rep, 50% male rep. I think that's... In the museum. Yeah, in the museum. I think that's a good idea, but I wonder, just because men's football did have that 50-year period when women's football didn't exist, I mean, we, we need more emphasis on the women's game because England's women are some of the best in the world because it's more advanced than other nations. Uh, but that brings me to think that maybe uh, women's football is a direction that you can start enjoying. Do you watch the women's game live as well? Uh, I did watch the, I've watched the women's game live. I watched the, I went to the 2012 Olympics uh, for England, uh, England, sorry, Team GB versus uh, Brazil at the, I think uh, GB won as well, 1-0, if I remember correctly. Yeah. And um, that was at Wembley and that was a record crowd at the time and it was a really good atmosphere. Uh, I went to the Women's World Cup last um, in 2019 as well in France so I went to Paris which is which I mean it was quite good from that point of view to obviously got to go to the games but also there was an exhibition that I was going to anyway at the um uh, on on North African football as well in the Frank sort of experience so I was kind of killing two birds there but I think if you go to any club museum you'll get the, the men's history anyway uh, anyway you go most right uh-huh. thing is about men's sports so there's plenty of outlets already for men's sport and my book mostly is men's sport I'll be honest with you um, and there is a section on, on women's and obviously uh, game and where where women's football is stronger say the US and uh, Scandinavia for example may arguably success wise um, at a national level they get some mention as well but um, I think the National Football Museum you know it's good that it's got a, um, a platform for that because there's plenty of other places to go for the men's history and I think women's women's history does need a platform and that's where um, I think it's very honourable that they're they're going to to look for that, so that, that young women that go along can be inspired and hopefully get into the game because they did have that, like I said, that fifty year hiatus where it wasn't possible, and and we need to accelerate the the adoption of the, of the game and support it where possible. I think for the women's game. Your fellow pitch author Stephen Lawther has written the book Arrival, all about Scottish women's football, which is excellent because it was really nothing, and then um, a. Swedish coach came in and took them so far. Shelley Kerr came in, took them so far. Scotland haven't qualified for the Euro. They'll probably qualify for the World Cup. And it's just putting things in place. We see how England put things in place and they had the FA Cup and then the Football League Championship. But if we're talking about football as a religion, then the apostles are Corinthians. Now, I know there are, there are books about Corinthians that have been written. 
Uh, and you've you spoke to John Forrest, the community manager at the club that is now Corinthian Casuals. Would you say that the Casuals reflect what was going on a century ago? Because they're still amateur, they still compete in the lower leagues, but they still do these yeah. tours, don't they? They went to Juventus, didn't they? Uh, well, no, well, they went to Budapest for the um, basically Corinthian Casuals appeal. <laughs> Sorry, Corinthians, I should say, Corinthian FC um, appears all the way through the book. For those not familiar with them, the current incarnation, Corinthian Casuals, um, it plays non-league football. They're still amateur. They're down in Tolworth in southwest London, but they were a touring side um, in the 1880s, formed because uh, partly of Andrew Watson's fault, actually, uh, who we mentioned earlier, because because Scotland was so successful and England only beat them once in an entire decade in the 18. 18- it was like right we need to catch up and a lot of because because a lot of it was was based around Queen's Park and the sort of nucleus of the players coming from there they all knew each other's game a guy called Paul Jackson was the one Nicholas Paul Jackson was the, the guy that um, kind of led it and he was credited with leading it uh, former Corinthians they look best amateur players in England to get together toured and played they were strong because they beat Blackburn Rovers uh, and their first tour of, Europe, um, of the North who were the FA Cup holders and the strongest kind of uh, team in that sort of, uh, I guess, the mid 1880s, um, and they they tour around the world as well. They go on numerous tours. They keep appearing everywhere, pretty much. In, in the book, they go to South Africa a few times. They go to Brazil, most famously, probably. They go to North America. Um, they go to Eastern Europe. They go to Scandinavia. And as I mentioned, Charles Rayford Brown uh, was a Corinthian and an England player. I mean, they also for two games against Wales, they, the Corinthians provided the entire team in the 1890s. I think that was. You know, they are. I think they're still even now. I think Tottenham only just beat them um, in terms of um, pre- presenting the most England players, producing the most England players. And um, so, yeah, I mean, they were still touring, you know, uh, uh, well, they became Corinthian casuals. They sort of merged. There was Corinthians who would go first and the casuals would follow after them to make sure the game was developing. And that was like the feeder club. And they had some great players who played for Corinthians. So once again, I mentioned like C.B. Fry, for example, it's a great um, all-rounder, uh, but also Charles Miller, who um, and is, is credited with introducing the game to Brazil. Uh, one of the people that introduced it to Brazil, he he also played for Corinthians. So uh, the Corinthian legacy, in particular in Brazil, is is huge. Day of recording, something I'm going to tweet out later on is the on this day in 1912 when they had suffered their first kind of overseas de- defeat to I think it was Slavia Prague. I'll have to double check, but it was um, definitely on the sort of like Central European tour. So that was a big landmark moment, really, sort of being Corinthians being beaten for the first time. Just goes to show you what kind of esteem they were held in wherever they went yeah the student becomes the teacher couple of quiz questions to finish the first half answers can be found in origin stories chris lee's book about the pioneers who took football to the world the first football association outside britain and ireland was in which european country it was in denmark in denmark um what is the name given to a foreign-born naturalized man in italy such as cameronese it was Oriundo, singular, Oriundi, plural. Yeah, um, I'm fascinated to learn about that. Which Italian side have spent decades pining for their 10th Serie A Scudetto? That would be Genoa Cricket and Football Club. How um, did they do so well had... at the beginning? Do they just have the best players or the best setup? Well, I mean, a lot of their first championships came in the, when there was only a handful of teams. Um, they had two sort of early peaks, one under... James Richardson Spensley, who's again one of the fathers of Italian football in the Italian chapter. Um, and when there was only, you know, they won the first tournament when there's only like four or five teams taking part. Um, and then under William Garbutt, who's, you know, famously the Mr., um, uh, as they're known in, in, in Italy, uh, the boss, he, he kind of led them to success in the early 20s. And they've been stuck on nine ever since. There was controversy with uh, Bologna in one of those titles. I think it would have been the 10th. 
so they've kind of um, but yeah I mean they're kind of a bit of a yo-yo team now aren't they they're kind of all often fighting against relegation so the 10th Scudetto that you know where you get that wonderful golden star um, just seems so far off right now which is a big shame because mm. uh, I definitely recommend everyone well, I know we're going to come to ground hopping later on but everyone's got to go to the, um, the Malassi you know the um, Luigi Ferraris it's a wonderful little ground I know that name William Garber because Rory Smith wrote that brilliant book about English coaches going abroad Jimmy Hogan comes off very well uh, and finally in this first half uh, what is the name of the Egyptian who played in England and has a biography written about him by Jack McEnroy. As Hussein Hegazi, and he's a fascinating player because he, um, I think he came from a bit of uh, quite a privileged background uh, just outside Cairo and he used to practice his accuracy by uh, aiming, yeah, people carrying pots on their heads and he used to <laughs> aim by kicking the ball at them. And, 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 and it's a great story in many ways, but obviously you've got to feel for the people who needed compensating lost their goods and his parents had to sort of pay out for it. But yeah, he, he ends up playing in Dulwich Hamlet and Fulham and he gets a good, uh, um, a great write-up. So yes, I interviewed um, um, James for this book as well. So uh, it's all good. Yeah, and Jack's book joins your book in the Football Jack's Library book, for which you get your Football Library card laminated with a shushing Brian Glanville on it. Have you spoken to Glanville yet? Uh, no, no, no. I haven't... Um, uh, the obviously the, the history of the World Cup is is um, the story of the World Cup. Sorry, is in the bibliography. Um, you know, that's a, a wonderful book that gets gets kind of built on every every four years. So um, definitely recommend that as a reading as well. Yeah, he was born the year after the first World Cup, and he is still mm. at. Well, it's April. Um, we're working towards the, his ninetieth birthday in September, and this is the Brian Glanville football library uh we'll take a quick break and um i'll put on my hiking boots and we'll go ground hopping in the second half (laughs) 